From World Radio, this is Double Take. Albanian Greek style. Okay. It's a type of lasagna, but we call that pastito. On a Monday evening last January, Elona Proy served dinner to guests at her home in Tirana, Albania. Among the visitors was World Radio correspondent Jenny Ruff. You've probably heard her on Legal Docket. After a prayer and a toast to good cheers. Amen. Amen. Welcome. Your world. <laughs> what do you say? What's the Albanian? Elona told a story. In September of 2005, Ilona and her husband Tani were living in northern Albania, a region called Shkoder. Tani was the pastor of a local church. Ilona was a stay-at-home mom to their two kids, Sarah, two, and Gabriel, four. It was a pretty normal weekday. We were living life. Tani was pastoring the church. Both kids were sick. They were getting injection on, on that day. A nurse was supposed to stop by the apartment, but as Ilona and her kids waited... We heard guns. We heard guns. What has happened? The nurse finally arrived with some news. The nurse came to do injections. She somebody said, killed somebody, somebody, she said. We don't know who he is. That somebody firing the gun turned out to be Alona's husband's uncle, Nicola Proy. He owned a nearby restaurant. According to Alona, that day a man from the mountain area had come into the restaurant. At one point, he said to Nicola something like, You're not a man. Give me your wife. Nicola rightly regarded this as an insult. They got into a shouting match. Nicola hid behind a table with a Russian assault rifle and began pulling the trigger. You know, just shooting in the air. After decades of war in the Balkans, military weapons are all over the place. Nicola was trying to shoo the mountain man away, keep him outside, but the man was drunk and cocky. He kept walking toward Nicola, right into the bullets. With a head back, saying to his friend, come on in, why are you staying out? Come on in. One of the bullets hit the mountain man in the face, killed him. That was the first murder. It locked two families in a blood feud, the family of the mountain man and the family of Alona's husband, Tani, the Proys. Albania is one of the last places on earth where people still practice blood feud, a cycle of revenge that can go on for generations. I'm Les Sillers. Today on Double Take, the story about a Christian family struggling desperately against a centuries-old custom, one of their culture's strongest imperatives, with roots in the beginning of human history. It's an impulse that most of us still recognize all too well, the desire for justice, and then some. We sent Jenny Ruff to Albania to bring us this story. She'll be back in just a minute. Double Take is made possible by listeners like you. Additional support comes from PNR Publishing, celebrating the release of two new children's books, Pilipinto by Valerie Elliott Shepard and God's Servant Ruth by Doug Bond. Use promo code WORLD at prpbooks.com. People were encouraged by the communities, like there were grandchildren killing grandchildren mm. because your grandfather killed my grandfather, even mm. though they never met their grandfathers. During dinner, Alona explained that blood feud is a fight between two clans or families. It begins with a murder, 
But the victim's family doesn't rely on the government to punish the killer. Instead, they take revenge into their own hands. They hunt down a relative of the killer and murder him. It doesn't stop there. The back-and-forth killings continue. Disproportionate revenge that goes on for generations. And let me just mention here something about how Alona and other Albanians understand the term blood feud, Jakmarja in Albanian. To them, it's more than just a noun, a thing like a fist fight. Blood feud is also a state of being. You're not just in a blood feud, you're in blood feud, like being in limbo. It defines your life. When Tani's uncle, Nicola, shot the mountain man, Every male related to the uncle by bloodline became a potential target. Alona's innocent husband, Tani, could be murdered at any moment. Their son, Gabriel, could be murdered. He was four. Tani's father, Tani's brother, a total of 25 Proi men were at risk. The first 24 hours of blood feud are the most dangerous. The Avenger may kill by any means necessary. Now, it was their turn. In 24 hours, they can burn you alive. I mean, literally. But the Avenger can't kill the men if they're inside their houses. He's not allowed. Yes, blood feud has rules, a code of conduct. The houses serve as a safe haven, similar to the Old Testament cities of refuge, where someone who had committed a murder could flee and avoid blood revenge. Historically, Albania had towers of refuge. So as soon as the Proy family realized what their uncle had done, they rushed to collect all their male relatives. Tani gathered his father, his brother, his uncles, just to bring them in the house. By then, it was about 7 o'clock in the evening. Nobody slept that night. 4 o'clock in the morning. This was September, I remember now. And me and Tani's mom, we will go in all the area with a torch to check every entrance of apartment. Checking to make sure nobody was lying in wait to ambush and kill Tani, or Gabriel, or any of the male relatives who might step outside. Blood feud typically ends in one of two ways. Sometimes it peters out. All the males on both sides have fled or been blotted out. There's nobody left to kill or be killed. Or one side forgives the other. That almost never happens in Albania's honor and shame-based culture. Forgiveness is seen as weakness. Sitting in the crowded house that night, the Proys faced a seemingly impossible task, keeping Tani and four-year-old Gabriel alive until one of their male relatives was murdered. But even if they managed that, another member of their family might retaliate. And so on, and so on. Alona Proy has silky dark hair and a kind smile. She grew up on the coast of Albania, where the Adriatic and Ionian seas meet. And I come from the south. I come from Vlora. So Vlora is like two hours southern. It's a beautiful city. Albania is a small country in southeast Europe. It's known for its castles, mountains, and a liquor called rocky, made with plums and other fruits. But Albania is perhaps best known for Mother Teresa, whose parents were from there. For the first 11 years of Alona's life, she lived under communist rule. She remembers standing in line for bread when she was six years old. My dream every day was to get the bread for my family. And I I mean like plain bread. It was bread and a thin sugar layer. If you put over the sugar some oil, you were rich. 
If you will stick the sugar with water, you are poor. She remembers husbands spying on wives, wives turning against husbands, warnings not to talk. Even walls have ears to ears, so don't talk. Don't talk anything. Don't speak anything. Because people are... If, even if you will say this bread is bad, you are offending the bread of the Communist Party. In 1967, Prime Minister Enver Hoxha declared Albania the first atheist country in the world. Churches and mosques became basketball courts and cultural centers. But after communism fell in the early 1990s, Christians could meet and speak freely again. Alona's older sister attended university in Tirana and met Swedish missionaries. In an earlier interview, Alona told me that when her sister she gave her life to Jesus, she came home in the summer holidays, she preached Jesus to all the family, including Alona. She describes her own relationship with Christ as love at first sight. By 1996, her sister was married with a baby and plans to move to northern Albania to work in a church. I had a little baby. My sister asked my dad, that I would go to live with them and take care of the baby. So that year, Alona moved to Skoder at age 14. The first person she met, the pastor of the church, Dritan Proy, nicknamed Tani. He had become a Christian as a youth and planted a church at age 17. When Alona turned 16, they were engaged. But Alona's dad wasn't thrilled with the news, not because she was so young, but because of blood feud. I mean, like the moment I was engaged with my husband and I told my dad that I'm marrying Tani, he said, what about blood feud? And I said, what is this? Because like, I didn't know what blood feud was. I've never heard blood feud before. That's because most blood feuds are in the northern mountains and villages, not in Vlora down south where Alona was raised. Alona told her dad not to worry. Tani was a good man, serving God. And he said, yeah, yeah, but what about his uncles? You know, like, what do we have to do with the uncle? And uh, so that was the first time I heard about Bloodfield. Still, she wasn't worried. Their lives were ingrained in the church. They had one goal, preach the gospel. Ancient oaths, codes of honor, and murderous traditions, such customs rarely crossed their minds. But when Tani's uncle shot the mountain man, the proys were thrust right in the middle of all of it. History and Hollywood are filled with stories of revenge, from Beowulf to the Hatfields versus the McCoys. In the 2008 movie Taken, Liam Neeson plays an ex-CIA agent whose daughter is kidnapped by an Albanian sex trafficker named Marco. Neeson's character tracks down Marco and, spoiler alert, kills him. The opening scene of Taken 2, the sequel, takes place at Marco's funeral. As his father and brothers throw dirt on his grave, they swear a deadly oath. On their souls, I swear to you, the man who took our loved ones from us, the man who has brought us such pain and sorrow, we will find him. We will not rest until his blood flows into this very ground. We will have our revenge. That's Hollywood's version of Albanian blood feud. Reality is a bit different. That's a small Albanian girl, the daughter of a man who's in blood feud. 
She's featured in the documentary Sons of Cain by Albanian filmmaker Keti Stamo. The girl describes what it's like to be imprisoned at home. She says, the place where I live, there is no garden. It's the darkness. I mean, it's like living inside an egg. It's a golden egg outside, but there is like a black hole inside. The oath to take blood revenge is based on an ancient code called the Kanun. Oral traditions according to rules that are sort of dictated and decided on by village elders. David Hasafluk is an American missionary, humanitarian, and historian. He's lived and worked in Albania since 1992. He says the Kanun set of unwritten rules mandated many aspects of life. Everything from how to set property boundaries to when you have to bring a sheep as a wedding gift. I mean, you just name it, there's all sorts of things. Uh, hospitality, there's a whole lot of discussion just about honor, um, how, how honor is shown, how it's not shown. The Kanun was useful back when Albania didn't have a recognized central government and during the 500 years of foreign occupation by the Ottoman Empire, an Islamic caliphate. And it really flourished in a time when, when the Albanians did not want to accept the dominion of a foreign government, and they preferred to govern their own affairs as Albanians. Many Catholics retreated to the mountains and created their own communities. Those villages were very hard to get to. So the more remote you get, the more difficult it is to take your armies and really establish law and order. David's point is that the ancient Albanians weren't barbarians. The Kanun was how they produced order. In a way, the Kanun shows the Albanians valued the sanctity of life. The rules of blood feud served as a deterrent to murder. And, you know, you see some similarity to this even in things in the Old Testament. One of the most famous laws of Moses is repeated in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The area where the Kanun flourished has historically been a largely Catholic region. He noticed the Catholic influence when he moved to northern Albania in the early 1990s. And I would go talk to the village leaders and I'd share just Bible Proverbs with them. I, I just read Proverbs. The, the, the men of the village loved the Proverbs, and they would always say, yeah, you know, that comes from one of our Proverbs, when I think it was the other way around, that they had gotten it at some point from perhaps a Catholic priest. But I wondered, why doesn't the blood feud stop after two murders, the original and the revenge? Like, if you took my eyeball and I take your eyeball, that should be the end of it. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Well, you probably say, well, I took your eye because you offended me first. I mean, it's just like my kids, you know, but he did it first, Daddy, you know. In other words, the first killer thinks he's justified, that he had a legitimate reason for taking a life. But the victim's family disagrees. So they take revenge. And the killings continue. The Kanun was compiled into a book in 1872 and named after an Albanian prince. Lek Dukagini lived in the 15th century, and he's one of, one of several who, who kind of were known for gathering these, these oral codes. But it's not the only canon. Lek Dukagini's Kanun became the most well-known and well-studied. I decided to find a copy and see for myself what it says. 
Tirana's main square has a fabulous bookstore. I heard it had copies of the Canoon, so I headed over on a Sunday night. And I bumped into Marcel Leila. Marcel pastors one of the few evangelical churches in Albania. The English translation of its name is Church of Evangelical Disciples. Today, Albania is very secular. Many hungered for God after communism fell, but almost all the missionaries left after civil war broke out in 1997. After browsing the shelves a bit, hmm. I found it, the blood feud book, but it's not in English. Can you point out the blood feud part? <laughs> Soon, Marcel found another copy, this one in Albanian, but with a parallel English translation. Marcel grew up in the north. Family lore says his relatives may have been in blood feuds centuries ago, but he's not sure. Still, he knows the code. We flipped through the book together. It has an, an index. This one has an index. Yeah. Yes. Verasa. Verasa. Murder. Oh. Yes. Chapter 22. Yes. Chapter 22. Marcel walked me through the rules of blood feud at a coffee shop yes. over a couple of cappuccinos. For example, only men can avenge a murder. A woman cannot take revenge, cannot kill. If a woman uh, kills someone for his brother, the vendetta is not done. Neither can a woman be the target of revenge. The canoon prohibits it. Or if you kill a woman, the whole village will uh, take in, uh, burn the house and uh, destroy the land and uh, the person with his family will uh, have to flee from the village with shame. Also? Or if you kill the priest, you'll be banished from them and everything of yours will be destroyed. So, no revenge against women or children, no revenge against a priest or a cleric or a man of God. But as he explained this, I was wondering why Alona's husband, Pastor Tani, and their little boy, Gabriel, were even at risk. The reason is that Albanians today often violate the historical canoon. Historian David Hasafluk told me that many ignore or revise the rules to their liking. In an Albanian, there's two words that are used. One is jakmarje, which is literally the taking of blood. And then there's a word that sounds like jakmarje. It's hakmarje. And that's just plain old revenge. David says these days, Hakmarja has taken the place of Jakmarja. So much of the blood feud, in my view today, is more of the Hakmarja, the, the, the plain old revenge, than the blood feud or Jakmarja, which when you look at all of the historical context, it, it's actually quite a, 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 you know, a code that's, it's, that's built in honor. And that brings up another passage from the Bible, Genesis 4. Lamech brags to his two wives that he killed a man for wounding him. And he says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Right, so he's like a great, great, great grandson of Cain. So he, Lamech, knows how God sort of dealt with his great-grandfather. Cain murdered Abel and then went back to God to ask for mercy and help. Not Lamech. And I think he's just being very arrogant. He's claiming self-defense and he kills a man. So kind of what I was telling you in the blood feud about how human nature is to say, well, I, I was justified in doing the crime I did. I think, you know, he's, he's one of the first guys in scripture who's doing that. David doesn't know whether the story of Lamech affected the Albanian codes. 
but he sees the parallels. Almost like a preemptive statement to all of his potential Avengers. David lived in the city of Skoder when Alona and Tani lived there. Tani was the pastor of a local church. Meeting Tani was one of the great blessings of my life and Alona. The only reason I met him is because, you know, I, I went up to Shkodra to plant a church, and I didn't know that there were any church, evangelical churches at all. The two men came from different denominational backgrounds, but they would often confer about how to best work together as Christians in the community. As we just began having coffees together from time to time, he would ask me for counsel on different things. In addition to the Proys, David met other families in blood feud. It definitely still goes on in Albania, and I think... I Here's why. The reason that people would give you for it continuing in Albania today is the weakness of the state to actually take action. The Albanian government is not just weak, it's corrupt. Everyone I spoke with believes so. They told me that the guilty can easily get out of prison for the price of a bribe. So... The rationale is if the government won't do it, there's no deterrent. Uh, my brother's killer is on the loose. That's not right. And therefore, you know, we've got to take it into our own hands. It's it always perplexes me why we have so much corruption in Albania. I think that there's a bit of a curse involved in a way that a country that has declared itself in a very arrogant way that we're the only constitutionally atheist government. You declare yourself as having no God publicly, brazenly, for many years. There are consequences to that. Let's get back to Alona and Tani. The initial 24 hours after Tani's uncle, Nikola, shot the mountain man passed without incident. But this fight was far from over. David remembers when the Proy's blood feud started. All of the men in the family are really required to, to go into their home and not leave the home. Not even able to walk into their own yard. So he went to visit Tani. I remember spending about an hour with, with Tani um, in his living room on his old couch. And, and we just talked and we prayed. And sweet Alona, very young at that time, having to deal with all of this. And, um, you know, brought us out some coffee or whatever. And yeah, I just, oh, my heart was broken. And I think that was one of the times when I realized how serious, like you can't even go out to go get buy eggs across the street. You'd think that Tani's uncle, who started it all, would be the prime target. Kill the killer. But that's not how blood feud works. Here's Alona. The strategy of blood feud is in 90% of the cases, they never kill the first killer the first murderer. Of the 25 men who were potential targets, Tani's dad was the oldest. He used to leave the house hoping to be killed, ready to give his life to protect his sons and grandsons. Tani's father, he went out and didn't stay present in the house because he wanted himself to be killed and the blood to be forgiven. He's my hero. He's the most faithful man in the church. Because he wanted to take, that the family will take revenge on him. And when we asked him and we said, Dad, you should be careful. And he said, I'm the oldest. Let them kill me. 
but killing the oldest isn't the strategy of blood feud either. The strategy is finding the youngest and the best of the family to cause the deepest pain. That's why Tani and Gabriel were in such danger. David says Tani would occasionally leave his home, very carefully. Um, he had people in the church that would look out and make sure, you know, kind of clear the path, and he'd kind of go undercover, not, not because he was so afraid, so to speak, but, you know, in true deference to the other family. I mean, they've lost somebody, and he recognized that. At the time of the first killing, the mountain man's brother was 16. His name is Mark. The duty to avenge fell on his shoulders. And in the Albanian honor and shame culture, the weight of that responsibility is intense. And the pressure is incredible on members of the family to, to act, to, to, to take the revenge. And I've been told by a number of young men who, whose families were in blood feuds that the greatest psychological pressure comes from their mothers, especially if it's like the father who's been murdered. Like, how can you eat that meal that I just made for you? How can you even eat it knowing that your husband, you know, your father's corpse is rotting in the grave? And I'm sorry to use this colorful language, but that's what they're hearing over dinner. It becomes an obsession. They must kill. Alona says that's true overall, and it was true for Mark. This guy, Mark, was 16. Every time he was eating, the mom was saying, you are eating food, my son is eating dirt. What are you doing? Go out and take revenge. So imagine a teenager that he doesn't have a safe environment, even in the presence of his own mom. For four years, Tani and Gabriel hid in their house. Tani could at least work from home, but Gabriel... He couldn't even play outside freely with friends. Elders and mediators try to reconcile families in blood feud through a formal process. They're the wise men who are supposed to bring peace to the families. But Alona says the approach doesn't work. Conflict of interest. Blood feud is how the elders and mediators make a living. I, I don't like the elders and that because for them is a way of living. Blood feud is a way of living. Yeah. You know, like they get money of doing that. Even though they're trying to reconcile. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so he's yeah. paid. Even so, the Proys tried to negotiate with the mountain man's family. We when, sent elders and mediators and we were saying like, please release children. You know, like we want to send children to school, release children, and they would not. The Proys scraped together more money to try again. Every time we send elders, we paid about $2,000. Wow. And we were without bread because nobody was working. All the men were in the house. So you can imagine a family, and we tried to send elders every Christmas, every Easter. Each time, they thought maybe, maybe the Avengers family would forgive. But they didn't. It's corruption to the heart. Yeah. A society without God. If they can afford it, a family in blood feud will relocate. Tani's brother went to a different part of Albania, where he and his family could live more freely. Alona and Tani also decided to move. So after four years being prisoned in the house, we decided to go in England. Tani took a new position, helping a pastor in Kent. So for us, it was time to go, and we went in England. And it was our free time. So uh, then when, when we went there, uh, after four years of being in Bloodfield, I was hoping we will be there for 
two years. But just as the family started to find a rhythm of life in a new country, plans changed. But two months later, Tani comes to me and he says, this is time to go home and fulfill the calling. Many families caught in blood feud are simply forgotten. They move about behind closed doors or sneak out in the dark of night. Tani had an idea. He wanted to start a foundation to pressure the Albanian government about blood feud and to help families in blood feud by easing their pain, find a way for Christians to provide food, mental health, and spiritual support to Albanian families isolated at home. That's Tani, speaking about his decision to return to Albania. He's saying the Holy Scriptures have taught him to forgive, no matter the consequences, and to love his enemies. And he goes on to say he wants to bring that message to others. Alona and Tani prayed about whether they should serve in this way. And an answer seemed to come through the Bible. And God gave us a word through Genesis 28:15 that God said to Jacob, I'll protect you wherever you go, but I'll bring you back to fulfill the calling I have for you. I didn't know what the calling was. And for me, it was like, maybe the other family will forgive us. Maybe God is calling us back because uh, we will be free and serve the the church, serve God. That's not what happened. When we came here, hoping that the situation will be better, it was awful. It was even worse than we left it. They wanted to take revenge. But this time, instead of hiding, the Proys took a different tactic. They moved back to Skoder. Tani resumed his role as a church pastor. And after a time of prayer, he decided to no longer hide away in his home. He believed God had called him to serve other families who had fallen into blood feud. Alona had been 14 years old when she first met Tani, 16 when she got engaged, and 18 when she married him. She'd never even heard of blood feud. Now, 28, she knew it too well, and she had educated herself. For me as a wife, I started to go wherever he was because I read stories that if uh, a target of revenge is accompanied by their wife or children, they never kill them. An avenger can't kill a man when the man is with his wife. So Alona walked by Tani's side each time he left their home. But of course, it was still risky. So even hand-in-hand with Alona, Tani took precautions. In restaurants, he sat with his back to the corner. He never turned on the car with his family inside. Instead, he made Alona and the kids stand at a distance. Every day, he hugged Gabriel and Sarah goodbye, knowing his life was at risk. Historian David Hasafluk remembers hearing that his friend Tani had decided to move back to Skoder. I had been learning more and more about the blood feud, and I was not happy with that decision. But after talking to Tani, he told me, and I can see the fire and the the conviction in his eyes, I can still remember it. He knew that God wanted him back. And he knew that it might cost. Tani moved forward with plans for his foundation to stop blood feud. 
He knew that it was that they might try something, but um, he he his focus was God called me to a mission. God called me to serve Skodra, to evangelize, and to pastor here. And I'm not gonna let. I'm gonna be respectful, but I'm not gonna let fear drive me, and leave it in God's hands. David remembers gathering with a group for coffee one Sunday after church. Tani was there. Alona and some of the other members of their church was were in another table, and I was just speaking to him alone, and we were talking about these things. And I remember myself feeling fear that someone was going to walk in the coffee shop with a machine gun. He was afraid of being hurt by a stray bullet, and he was a little ashamed of himself. And I felt so small in his shadow just by, like, looking around the coffee shop saying, what am I going to do if somebody walks in? Like, I felt guilty for having those fears. And then I realized, what must this man and his family be living with every day? And yet he counted the cost and he said, God called me to serve my people. And, and he did it. October 8th, 2010. Alona remembers that day, how it started as a Friday morning like any other. In the early hours, the city began to wake up. Schroeder is a beautiful city and the cradle of the culture. Rosafa Castle sits on the outskirts and was built before Christ walked the earth. The marketplace has been around for thousands of years. When the sun begins to rise, the street dogs that yap all night finally stop barking. A man unlocks his store and throws one of the dogs a sausage. The mosque delivers its call to prayer. The bells start ringing at the Franciscan church. Before long, the Peronalia, the pedestrian street, is alive with busy shops, music from restaurants, and locals milling around. And for him, it was his day off. It was a Friday that he was preparing for the sermon on Sunday. But Tani needed to pick up something he'd left at the church. He told Alona that this one time, she didn't have to go with him. But he was like, don't come, I'll just be fast, just go to the church, and I'll be home. So to me, like, I was, you know, relaxed and preparing lunch in the house. Tani headed out the door. Uh, it was a Friday, the day, and he went to the church. There was a girl working there, so she said when he came to church, he was restless. And then one o'clock, he left the church, walked in this street to go to the car with his bag. As Alona told me this story, we were retracing Tani's steps. The church where he worked is a block off the pedestrian corridor. Tani had parked his car at the end of it, in front of a store now called Beauty Point. uh, He always parked there and walked here to come to the church every day. But this time, when Tani returned to his car, a guy was waiting. Back at home, Alona started to wonder what was going on with Tani. Her phone kept ringing. People from the church were looking for him, and Tani wasn't picking up. Alona tried calling him, too. Then her brother-in-law called and said he was coming over. That's when Alona began to worry. So I just went out in the streets, and I was stopping every police in the street, asking what has happened. 
And he was like, somebody, a proi, has been shot. And I was like, is he alive? Where is he? And he said, go to the hospital. So she ran to the hospital. But Tani wasn't in the ER or in the operating room. She found him in the morgue. Alona later learned that when Tani came back to his car... The guy that is the brother of the victim that Tani's uncle killed was waiting for him where the car was parked. He asked Tani a question. Are you Dritan Proy? And Tani said, yeah, what do you need? And then he shot him. Tani tried to flee, but Mark followed him into a nearby restaurant. Eight times, he shot with a pistol in broad daylight. Stray bullets wounded two others. I remember a lot of, like, things that happened as a kid. That's Gabriel, Connie and Alona's son. Today, he's 21 and in college. But the day his dad was murdered, he was nine. His sister, Sarah, was seven. That day, a friend from church picked up Gabriel and Sarah from school. But they were all quiet, so I didn't know what was going on. Alona hadn't told her kids anything yet. She needed to deal with the fiery trial of the moment. Alona's sister picked them up and brought them to her home in Tirana, two hours away, away from the newspapers and television. Gabriel remembers talking to his mom on the phone. Our mom called, do you want to come home? And I was like, no, I don't want to. I'm having a lot of fun. And then I hear her voice crack and saying like, but I want you here. And I start crying because I heard the voice crack. I didn't know what was going on. Gabriel and Sarah returned home. And then the next day we come back to Skoder. And the first thing I noticed was my dad wasn't in the house because he was always at the house. And he usually would like be in the office and ask where my dad is. So we sat down and they just explained that, yeah, your dad isn't here. He's not in Tirana. He went up to be with the Lord. I remember, I remember when I said, do you know how old Jesus went to be with the Lord? Mm, and Jesus yeah. went to the cross and he said, oh, mom, don't preach us now. I miss home. You know, she, he was like, I said, no, no, tell me. And he said, 33. And I said, dad has gone in a long journey. He was like, don't tell me that dad has gone to be with the Lord. Tani was 34. The moment Tani was killed, the 24 remaining male relatives in his family were free, no longer locked in their homes. These men that were free the moment Tani was killed, blood was paid with blood, everybody that was in the house went out. They didn't want, they didn't need anybody to tell them you are free. They knew they were free. It was the Proy's turn to kill. The burden of deciding whether to take revenge fell squarely on Tani's immediate family. Gabriel, Tani's brother Paolo, and Tani's dad. They knew that if they did decide to continue the cycle of revenge, people would understand. It's hard for us in the U.S. to grasp how a culture could accept the idea of blood feud. 
So I took to the streets of Tirana with some friends to ask folks what they think of it today. We walked into a bakery. I am Mario. He was running the place. Have you heard of the blood feud before? When I was in uh, high school, I had a friend who was from north. And he said uh, this thing that uh, his uh, uncle said to him that if you kill someone else, he will come kill from your family, you know? So, you so in, order, in order to end it, you have to kill everybody. Mario said the mentality of blood feud is going away as the laws change. He said it's an old tradition that's caused a lot of problems. Many problems with courts, uh, going to jail and things like this, and it didn't go positively, you know? What do you think should happen when one person murders another person? Mostly the other person to go to prison and things like this, but uh, it's, it's hard to say when it's uh, someone you lost. Revenge, he told me. It's very, very sweet. The people I spoke with frowned on revenge killings. One woman named Shpresha, or Hope, said she knows people in blood feud. Danila Leila served as my translator. What do you think should happen if a person kills another person? Yeah, it has to be decided by the law and, uh, yeah, not by the people. Ada spoke of forgiveness and said the killers should go to jail. He needs to go to jail to pay for what he's done and to think well for and to reflect. Clara runs a clothing store in Tirana. If we had justice, we would not have blood feud. Yeah, we have heard a lot of cases that people were killing other people and they were into jail just for two years and then they came out. So, because it's not functioning. I heard that a lot. Albania needs a better justice system, one that's not corrupt. Vaska Zeka is Alona's sister. She summed up Albanians' views of blood feud this way. If you are saying to them, you ask them, uh, what do you think of blood feud? Is it good? They'll say it is terrible. It's not good. It should end. But when they are in this situation then, and they would uh, place the honor in one side, and their lives and their family life. And on the other, they would choose honor. And for them, honor is much more pressure than life itself. But Tani valued Christ more highly than honor. The week before Mark killed him, Tani had coffee with his brother, Paolo. And he asked his brother, he said to him, you promised me that if I'm killed because of vendetta, you will forgive my blood. And his brother promised him, and this was his last meeting with his brother. A week later, he was killed. So Tani had refused his culture's demands. He asked his family to stop the cycle of blood feud, to forgive. The day Tani died, he had his briefcase with him. When he was killed, he had his Bible and the project against blood feud. So the Proy family decided they would forgive. Tani's friend, David Hasafluk, says that had a profound effect on the community. Whenever there is a forgiveness pronounced, it is praised all over. Like, it goes viral, not, not on social media, but, you know, from mountain to mountain, that there was a forgiveness pronounced. But it's one thing to talk about forgiveness. It's another to forgive. When Alona saw Tani's uncles hugging and praising the Lord that they were alive, she felt the injustice rise up inside of her. She began to pray. Mm -hmm. 
The moment I was conscious that Tani was killed, my first prayer to the Lord was, God, put an angel in my mouth that I will never speak against you. My mouth is speaking Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Learning how to forgive took time. This is the name to go through the valley of death. About six months after his dad died, Gabriel and his mom were walking home from school. Gabriel had just turned 10. We were walking by the Court of Appeal, and I was just curious about the court because I didn't know what it was, and I asked, like, what is this building? Alona explained that if a family wasn't happy with the punishment given to a criminal, the family could come to the appeals court and ask for a longer sentence. She told him the man who had killed his father was sentenced here. Mark was in jail. And I said, uh, I feel bad for the criminals because there are criminals who have done the crime once and never get a second sh uh, chance. She told me, like, what would you do with him? He's only done one crime. So what would you do with him? And I said, I would forgive him. God has taught us to forgive and revenge belongs to God. So it's mm -hmm. not in our hands to take revenge. So many times, Alona thought she'd forgiven Mark, only to discover she was back at square one. You said, okay, I forgive once, and why am, am I feeling like this? I see my enemy, and there is all these troubles rising up inside of you, but this is the wrong expectation. Forgiveness is not a one-time event. It happens every day. Yeah. I choose to forgive every morning. In Alona's grief, she found comfort in God. It was beautiful because it is like, I have known God like never before in my grieving process. The grieving valley was my preparation time for what God had after that. On what would have been Tani's 35th birthday, Alona fulfilled his vision. She launched the foundation No to Blood Feud, Yes to Life. She opened a school and daycare center called Future Generation at the church Tani planted. The whole first floor, there were children of blood feud that will come, will be fed, will be helped with homework, English, will do sports. So for us it was, if this was the last door closed and then he went to meet the father, we opened the door with little kids, the fruits of that seed that died. Educating young boys is critical. Alona's sister Vasca says it's hard for the men in the country to see the moral wrong of taking revenge in a blood feud. We believe that uh, this is something that is rooted inside of them and uh, it is very deep. Uh, and only a miracle from God can change this from the heart of the man. But when it comes to the little ones, the young sons and nephews of those men, we believe that uh, they are like, uh, they are very soft and you can sh shape them. So th this is why we have future generations. We want them to, to be educated and to see the potential that God has put it inside of them to change their reality and the reality of their families and the country.
Six years ago, Alona moved the church and school to a new location that's five times bigger. So we will visit two families. On a Friday afternoon, she packs bags full of Italian cake, Pepsi, and sparkling orange juice. She often also brings food staples, like rice and sugar, and things like soap. Loads the bags into the back of our Toyota RAV4 and heads out of the city, down a bumpy dirt road. It's hard to pinpoint how many families in Albania are in blood feud. We don't know the numbers, but we support 50 of them. And it's only in this region, I mean like five kilometers far from Škoder. She's in the village of Bardai, and one of her many stops is at the home of an elderly woman named Grosha, which means beans. Grosha greets us outside her home. Hi, Jenny. She's 68 years old. She wears a black skirt, a bright blue jacket, and a sheer headscarf tied below her chin. Inside her house, she invites us to sit in her kitchen. She set out orange slices from her orange tree, a loaf of bread made from scratch. Her homemade cheese is still bubbling on the wood stove. Alona translates as Grosha tells me how her family wound up in blood feud. But within moments, she's in tears. She's grateful Alona has been helping her through the difficult and dangerous time. She has preached us. Grosha's grandparents were Christians. They prayed when they ate, when they slept, and when they worked. But they prayed with their mouths closed, because it was forbidden under the communist regime. If they were caught, they would be put in prison. Grosha met her husband through her aunt. He came to ask for me. Mm. Oh. I, I, I was not concerned that he was poor. To me, it was like, is he a good man? Then we have everything. Oh. Grosha said God gave them five children, three sons and two daughters. But Grosha's husband died when their youngest daughter was only two years old. Grosha raised her kids as a widow. Then, one day, Grosha's oldest son got into a fight with another family member, his cousin the son of Grosha's sister. It happened in a moment, just a a, a blink of an eye. The murder took place a few feet away from where I sat in Grosha's kitchen. The two young men had been drinking Rocky, and an argument turned heated. The cousin hit Grosha's son with a bottle of Rocky. That drew blood, so Grosha's son grabbed a knife from the kitchen. It was out of control, just in a hot-blooded moment, it it happened. The cousin was dead. The blood feud had begun. Grosha's son fled. He was in the mountains for about 40 days, almost died, frozen, and then the police got him up in the mountains. And he went to prison. Grosha has 11 siblings, but they all sided with her sister. They left Grosha alone to take care of her oldest son's wife and two kids, one of them a three-year-old boy. And remember, Avengers don't necessarily kill the killer. They want him to suffer. I had my grandson that was three years old, and I was terrified that they will come in the house and kill my grandson at the age of three. Grosha's two younger sons were also potential targets. They both fled the country. Now she has no pension, 
nobody to work for the family, and grandchildren to support. I don't know how I am alive. Alona's younger sister Vaska says Grosha was torn apart. And now you can think of what uh, she feels. She loves her sister, she loves her son, and she loves a lot her, her nephew. He's not yeah. living anymore. So you can imagine her heart. Grosha says God kept her mind in the right place. The mouth doesn't know how to tell it because words don't have power to, to say. Her son is now out of prison. He sought asylum in Italy, but he was turned away. So he returned home and faced the same choice Tani did, imprison himself inside or risk his life by going out. This is where Alona steps in. She worked on forgiveness with both sides of the family. Unlike the elders and mediators, Alona doesn't take money for her work. Uh, she knew what, was I, what I was suffering because she went through that also. Alona has managed to get the sister's family to agree they won't avenge the murder, on one condition. Grosha's son can't live in the village near the family. So Grosha's son now rents a place in Škoder. I think that God has made it clear that when you take someone's life in, intentionally or through gross you know, disrespect of other laws, you forfeit the right to live just on a, on a principle level. David Hasafluck points out that forgiving someone doesn't mean there are no consequences. The whole idea is that life is so valuable that we show the value of life by saying, yes, you forfeited your life, your right to live, certainly to live in freedom. When Tani was killed, under current Albanian law, a man who killed in blood feud got 30 years in prison. But because of government corruption and a weak justice system, that rarely happens. Tani's uncle, who started the blood feud, never served a day in prison. He's free because he paid the bribery to the court to free him. 40,000 euros. But Mark, who killed Tani, did go to prison. For Alona, forgiveness was a bit easier, knowing Mark was locked up. In the years since Tani's death, she has traveled all over the world telling her story. A few months ago, I saw Alona speak at a multicultural church in Baltimore. She said after Tawny's death, she felt the injustice rise up inside of her. You know, I was bitter in the first months, and I was asking the Lord, God, I have got all the right to be bitter. This is my power. I want to have bitterness. She knew the desire for justice wasn't wrong, but she also knew it wasn't her place to mete out absolute justice. Only God can do that. To refuse forgiveness? The prison of unforgiveness, it is the worst prison that a follower of Jesus can be. Gabriel was in the audience too. She looked at her son. My son today is free because his father paid for him. As those words sunk in, she then turned to the core of the Christian faith. How humans are deeply flawed, but Christ forgives us of a debt we could never pay back. How his blood offers us the ultimate forgiveness. You are free because the Father 
mother paid for you with the blood of the Lamb. David points out that to refuse to forgive, to instead demand payback and then some, brings us into Lamech's trap. But Jesus quoted Lamech's words to teach the exact opposite. When Peter asks Jesus about forgiveness, you know, should I forgive seven times? Is Jesus referring back to this when he says, no, 70 times seven? Alona encouraged people to obey Jesus's command. It is easy to follow Jesus in the top of the mountains, but the challenge is... Are you following Jesus in the hardest, the darkest, and the most painful times of your life? I couldn't forgive without the help of God. After the service, I ran out of the auditorium to catch her, but I got lost in a maze of hallways. As I stood there looking around, I saw a woman trembling in the arms of a friend. Through tears and hiccups, she kept saying, I know I need to forgive. I know what Alona says is true. The friends started praying for her. I left, but it got me thinking of all the different ways we hurt one another, whether the offense is a murdered husband or careless words. Last year, Alona was invited to speak at a church in Serbia. After she told her story, the church began to sing and worship God. And I see Tani hugging Mark in the vision. I mean, like I was worshiping and I saw this and I was like, God, what is this? And God said to me, the greatest favor you can do to your husband is give Jesus to this man that Mm. they might meet again. So if they met Mm -hmm. in an environment when darkness overcame, they will meet again in an environment where light always overcomes. Alona later found out the day she had the vision was the day Mark was released from prison. He only served 12 years of 30. She's okay with that. She sees both Tani's uncle and Mark as victims of their community. And the Proys have long known what's most important. Nobody has the right to take lives because God has given life. But in the end, it was like if Tani would have been alive, The only thing he wants for you is to follow Jesus. This episode of Double Take was reported and written by Jenny Ruff. Produced by Emma Purley and me, Les Sillers, with the help of the creative team at World Radio. Next time on Double Take. And then I noticed these wanted posters had my face on them. It's not something that once you know, oh, this is a dream, then you know how to do everything. How do I know, so goes the question, that I'm not actually a brain in a vat that's having all of these experiences right now. There was like a month straight when I was 17 that I got shot in my dreams like every single night. And every single night I was aware that I was dreaming and it was terrifying. Thanks for listening. I hope that you will follow us on your favorite podcast app and don't forget to rate and review us. Email a note to us at doubletake at wng.org. Better yet, record your comments on your phone and email those, or just call our listener line at 202-709-9595. We'll see you next time.